This morning we're looking at 2 Samuel. It's the lectionary text for this week, the Old Testament. Um, so I want us to uh, look at 2 Samuel. We're going to start at the end of verse of chapter 11 and the beginning of chapter 12. So 2 Samuel chapter 11, starting at verse uh, 26. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and he, it grew up with him and with his children. He used to, to eat, it used to eat his morsels and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. And it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for a man, for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. He said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were not were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did this in secret, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. Let us pray. Dear Lord, we come before you looking at this passage. We thank you for your word. but. We acknowledge this is a difficult passage, and we just ask that you be among us, and all that is said be for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this is, it's a difficult passage. Um, 
not really one I picked. I really toyed with her to, to stick with the lectionary this week or not, but, but we went with it. But as we think about this passage, I want you to understand what's going on just real quick to, to make sure you're, you're aware and some of, the, some of the themes that have come out of this in chapter 11. So what happens is this is David, King David. He's, he's now king of Israel, and it's the David who had been anointed king uh, when Saul was still king, but Samuel sends him to anoint the king, and he chooses David, who is a faithful shepherd, and um, it's David who has the courage to stand up to Goliath, and it is David who has to wait for years and run from Saul and be, be pursued by Saul. It's David who struggles, and God is faithful with him. And then eventually David is given the throne, becomes the king of Israel. And scripture says it is David who is the man after God's own heart, who loves God and seeks God. But when you get to chapter 11 of 2 Samuel, this is when things are going well. David's gotten all this. He's king. He's won many victories and things are good. What it says in the text is it's the time of year that the king should be out leading the troops. The king should have been out with the army uh, providing leadership and, and going with them. But David delegated that to a general and stayed home. Now that's the first problem in the text. David was supposed to be doing what God had wired him to do, what he was supposed to be doing, what was supposed to happen in this season. And he was supposed to be out accomplishing that task, but he didn't. He stayed home and delegated that. And while he was home, he noticed a pretty girl, and uh, Bathsheba. And she happens to be the wife of Uriah the Hittite, who is in the army, who is out fighting. And eventually he, he has uh, Bathsheba come over and, and visit and... Thing, one thing leads to another, and she ends up pregnant. And we'll just pause there, acknowledging one of the first pieces of the puzzle. Part of the, the problem here for David is he stays home and not doing what God would have him to do, wired him to do, what he's supposed to be doing as king. How true that becomes. You know, for the years that he waited for the kingdom that had been promised to him, the years that he prayed for it and sought after it, but had to wait and wait, and it finally is given to him. And now he's just delegated and stayed home. How many times that happens in our own lives? When you pray for something, when you seek something, when you want some blessing or some event, or you're just something you've waited for or wanted and felt was the right thing, and finally it happens, and we forget God in the process. We begin to take, take for granted whatever it is that we have been given, the privilege that we have. Well, he, he does that. You see that happen when so much is given so often. Well, that's where the first step, where uh, temptation and coveting his neighbor's wife comes into play. 
It opens us up. When, when we're not out there doing what it is God has wired us to do, what, where, where God is leading us to follow, where God is wanting us to go. But instead, just going through the motions. It can open us up for significant uh, temptation. Well, that's what happens. And we have Bathsheba. She becomes pregnant. And you probably know the rest of the story. It's mentioned here. Um, What happens is when David, the king, realizes Bathsheba is pregnant, he has her husband, Uriah the Hittite, brought home from the battlefield and brings him home and basically tells him, you need to go relax for a little while and spend some time with your wife and, you know, just rest. Now, his goal was that he would go home, spend some time with his wife, and everybody, including him, would assume that the child is is Uriah's. Um, But what happens is it backfires. Uriah the Hittite is so devoted to David and to Israel and to the cause and to his fellow soldiers that are fighting, he actually camps out and stays at the gate. And he tells David, there's no way I could go home and relax and spend time with my wife and and just enjoy enjoy some free time when my brothers, my fellow soldiers are out there giving their lives. So he just stays at the gate. Well, then uh, David gets another plan. He decides the next night, I will give him some wine, and maybe if he gets um, drinks plenty, he will forget his devotion, and he will go home and, and spend some time with his wife. Well, he doesn't do it. He still camps out at the gate, still has immense devotion for the cause and for his fellow soldiers. Now, it's interesting here that we see David, who has waited so long, been the faithful person, the man after God's own heart, who is now the one that's trying to cover up sin. He's just only thinking about himself. And Uriah the Hittite, understand this is Uriah the Hittite. He is an outsider. He either converted to Judaism as a proselyte or he's been brought in to serve in the army or however that came. We don't get his backstory. But he's Uriah the Hittite. He's not Uriah the Israelite. This Hittite has more devotion to Israel and the calls and David and what God is up to than David does. David is only thinking about himself. Well, Uriah won't go home. So then David decides another plan, and he sends Uriah back into the battle with a message for the general and says to the general, you need to take Uriah and put him on the front lines, and you need to actually put him in the place that has the worst, amount, worst fighting, the place he is most likely to die. So the general does that, and of course Uriah dies in battle. Well, at this point, when Uriah has died in battle and David is notified, that's where we pick up with what we read today. His his wife, Bathsheba, finds out and goes into mourning. And then immediately, David brings her into his house and marries her. Now, his goal there was, if Uriah has died, then he would look like the benevolent king the king who cares about Uriah the Hittite, the king who who loved his soldier enough to bring his wife into his own home. You know, this benevolent gift to care for his wife and and care for her and take 
make sure she had a, a place in a way, because a woman in the ancient world kind of left out there with, with no man could be in trouble. So he benevolently brings her to him. So everything's been covered up. And everybody would think David has done a great thing. And then the child is born. There's only one problem. And it's the problem we have so often. When we begin to cover up our sin and think we can hide it away and think we can make whatever excuses we can make for it, God always knows. God is always aware. Now, it doesn't say in the text, but sometimes people will, will read Psalm uh, 32 that, that talks about uh, David and it just his sin kind of consuming and it just kind of hangs there and it won't, won't let him up because that's often what happens. We think we've covered it up, but it's really still there. And God knows. But one of the principles that you see here that is true, is sin has a way of being progressive. You know, the first sin, simple. You know, he just kind of a sin of omission, kind of not, not fulfilling the, the role God had called him to do, and kind of, yeah, I just, I'm not going out to this battle. I'll, I'll stay home. That leads to the next temptation. That leads to the coveting. The coveting that leads to adultery. And the adultery that eventually leads to murder. But sin is progressive. And when we sin and cover it up, it makes the next sin often a little easier until we eventually end up in a place we never thought we would be. But here, David has, has covered everything. No one would be aware, except God knows. And the prophet Nathan comes to David and tells him this little sad story about a man who has all these herds and, and another poor man who just has one little ewe, ewe lamb that he loves and is taken care of. And the man with all the herds takes the poor man's lamb and offers it as a meal to a, a traveler. And David gets furious. since that guy's got to die. I mean, this is horrible. This, this, this has got to be made right and justified and that's when Nathan looks at him and says as we read here you're the man you have done this but the truth there that sin will find us out we will end up in places we never thought we would be and God knows now one of the things in this text that that is where you will hear it mentioned and hear it talked about. And it's, it's one of those stories of David we, we will mention often. Because it reminds us of God's grace. That no matter how bad you sin, God can forgive. Because we see David repent here. And it's a very short repentance, but sometimes uh, we have also scholars will, will read in psalm 51 in the text there too of kind of that that is the repentant heart of david the idea that he finally realizes the sacrifices and the cover-ups and what other people think and what others going on and how well you can cover it, none of that matters what matters is a broken and contrite heart before god and so he says i have sinned before god owns it goes public with it Nathan the prophet know and repents and God forgives him 
It's a beautiful story of God's grace. God forgives him. It's one of the things about David, and I've, I've mentioned that before, that make him the great king of Israel. It is not that David doesn't sin. Actually, if you read the scripture, Saul does some, now he does some sinning too, but David's sin is, in my opinion, worse. But what makes it different is David is the only king that repents every time he's confronted with his sin. When Saul gets confronted with his sin and where he's gone wrong, he just gives an excuse, he gives a cover-up, he just gives a reason why he did it and blames it. If you keep reading the, the stories of the kings of Judah and of Israel, many of them don't even acknowledge their own sin, don't even admit they've sinned. Sometimes they'll give excuses and explain it away. Or sometimes they just listen to the false prophet who says, ah, it's no big deal, God's still with you, and they ignore the other prophets. But David is the only king, while his sin is some of the worst. And this is one of them. He's the only one that every time he repents, gets honest before God. And in my opinion, that's what makes him a man after God's own heart. The gift of repentance that brings forgiveness. Now, it's an image of God's grace. It's an image of how, how we, we can't out God's grace. No matter what we've done, God can still forgive us. But the story doesn't stop there, although we would like it to. There are consequences to the sin that are very difficult. Sin, because of his sin, there's effects for his, his house, his home, his future, the, his, his children in the future of what will happen and the sword and the violence and things that will happen. And you see those play out in Scripture. But the worst is that, is that verse 14. Actually, I almost did read it this morning. I mean, that's the one we would, we just, let's just ignore that one. The idea of the son dies. This son that he has with Bathsheba that he wanted to pawn off on Uriah. God says, that son's going to die. Now, there's, there's, there's no easy answers for that. It frustrates us. That is a difficult passage. It is a difficult concept. And there's different ways we can deal with it. Maybe we just ignore it. Let's just ignore it. Don't, don't read it. Maybe we just rip it out of the Bible and just, you know, the God that I worship, that that wouldn't apply, and we're just, we're just going to tear that out and not be there. Or you could actually legitimately read Chronicles and never read First or Second Samuel. You know, Chronicles is a kind of a post-exilic storytelling of the story of the kings of Israel and what happened. It's kind of a retelling, and you get some different perspectives and different insight that's kind of after the exile or part of the exile that, that is important. Well, the chronicler that tells this story of David actually completely leaves out what happened with Bathsheba. So we could just read that one, and uh, let's just don't read this one, and it'll be better. Well, I always struggle with that. I, I struggle with a text like this, but I would rather deal with it. I would think about what, is it, what does it say. Now, there's no easy answers here, and it is painful. 
in, in those moments that we just want to just want to pull it out. It just doesn't fit. It makes us frustrated and, and angry that it's even in the Bible. Those are the moments I think sometimes that we need to just back away and look at the big picture of Scripture. Maybe that's the right, wrong thing to do. I don't know. But if you back away and look at the big picture, what is the message? What is the overall message? And you find when you do that, sometimes you'll discover God's grace always goes first. That's a different sermon from a different scripture, but that is true. But also when you back away and you think about the big picture, it can reveal some truth that is very significant. Uh, like when I said a few weeks ago, when we were looking at a passage with the disciples, and it was something that was really odd. Sometimes the odd piece, the thing that that just, you know, that's just weird, that's in there. Why, why would that be? Is the place that if you back away and look at, that can speak some of the most truth. So we back away and look at this. While there's no easy answer, and it is painful and difficult, there is a biblical principle there that you see throughout the Bible. And that you actually see throughout the Bible, you actually see throughout life. Because you, you see, you, you can't just take a passage and tag onto it, this is the answer for all this, this situation forever. I don't think that's right. I think Scripture pushes away, pushes against that. To say, well, sin is the cause of all sickness and all death and the death of an innocent and, they, you know, figure out why you must have sinned. Jesus doesn't even let us get away with that. Jesus tells the disciples when they're facing the blind man and asks, well, who sinned, this man or his, his parents? Jesus says, nobody. This is for the glory of God. The scripture doesn't let you give a one-time, one-answer, fits-all situations. That still makes it difficult. That doesn't solve our problem here. And ultimately, there's a part that we're just left hanging with, what does it say? Why is that there? But you can also think about it in, in terms, you know, we all get to that point that we wonder, that we have this question of, you know, why, why do the innocent die? Why do the innocent take him from me? We've, we've been in that situation, you wonder why. Someone was taken earlier than you thought, or someone that was a good person, something happened. And you can turn to passages like Psalm, I mean like Isaiah 57, that talks about, you know, the righteous die, are taken away, and, and, and it frustrates people. That's what's right there in the text. In Isaiah 57, and it just, it makes us frustrated, and we ask questions, and we don't understand. But then the next verse, verse 2, says, we don't understand. You know, we're not God. But the righteous are taken from calamity. And the brokenness of our world are taken from it, and they're given peace. Maybe we want to read that into the text here. This is the boy that, that you know, David tried to pawn off on Uriah. This is the boy that would be a perpetual reminder of David's sin. This is the boy that's going to grow up and everybody would know, hey, that's the Ill illegitimate boy of you know, David and Bathsheba. There's no secret. Maybe that would be terrible calamity, and he was spared that and given peace, but that, that still doesn't fit, in my opinion. I remember my grandmother, she lost a brother when she was like in fifth grade, 
to uh, tetanus or, or lockjaw at the time. They didn't have tetanus shots back then. And she would tell me, you know, she would remember, uh, you know, the funeral. And she said, the pastor said, you know, God took my brother because he wanted a, another rose for the road guard, rose garden in heaven. It gave her peace. It creeped me out. I just thought, that's, I don't know. I, to where, that, that, may, that may bring you peace. That may be the answer. This child who could have been tormented and all kinds of stuff, and by friends, he's given peace. He's, he's righteous. He's, he's innocent. And that's still it's frustrating to me. But I think if we back away, as I said, and, and look at the passage, look at the whole counsel of God's word, you see some truth there. That's true even though I don't like it. Especially in those consequences that are talked about with David. While his sin's forgiven, he said, this is the stuff that's going to happen. Because the truth is sin always, always damages the innocent. All of us have probably been hurt and, and damaged by someone else's sin. They may not know about it, but we all innocently suffer because of the sins of someone else. And the truth of that is that there's other people who innocently suffer because of our sin. That there can be something that happens that while God can forgive the sin, the consequences and the stuff that, that goes out there can't be undone. I mean, say I murdered someone. Well, God may forgive me of that when I'm repentant, but it doesn't bring the person back to their family. There's still consequences of that. There's even lesser sins, other sins that I've done that are still out there that you can't undo. You can't, you can't undo some of the consequences of what have happened, of what was said, of what was done. And, and even as the spiritual leader of my home, when I sin, I, I'm opening up my family to, to the enemy and to consequences. And when you see things happen, it, it affects the innocent. If there are sins that we commit today, right now, that will have a destructive effect on future generations, on our children. Scripture even uh, supports that idea. You see, that idea of the sin, and I believe it was Alistair Brigg that I heard give this, this idea, uh, thinking of the sin like a, a pebble. You know, I've got boys at home, and, and if we're anywhere that there's a large body of water, a lake or a puddle or anything, and there's a rock nearby, we're going to throw the rock into the water. It's just boys have to do that. I like throwing rocks. And you throw a rock in the water, what happens? You get these ripples. You think about the rock being like our sin. And God can deal with the sin, forgive the sin, take the sin and separate it as far as the east is from the west and forget it and remember it no more and it be dealt with. But you can't undo the ripples. You can't undo the ripples that affect other people. That's why it's a broken world. Sometimes you can trace, even biblically, the, the, something that seems atrocious back to sin from years and years ago that wasn't dealt with and it just you, you can't undo the ripples 
violence or abuse that happens in a family, it can devastate generations. Actually, Scripture mentions that. If you read in, in Deuteronomy chapter 5, it's talking about the Ten Commandments, and there's a point where it says, the iniquities of the, the fathers will be carried on to the children for the third and fourth generations. You see, my opinion, and if you read the Hebrew and understand the difference in the words, sin and iniquity are a little different. Sin is, is like that rock. It's like the thing we do, and, and God can forgive us and when we repent and make it right. But you know the ripples that you can't, can't stop, the, the, the stuff you can't put back in the box, you can't undo? Well, the biblical word for that is iniquity. Iniquity is like the stuff that gets, gets out there, gets on you, and you can't get it off. And iniquity that, that goes, and the iniquity that is experienced generations. Now, maybe that doesn't fit, or doesn't alleviate our tension with this specific text. I'll be honest about it. There's a point where you may have to say, I, I, don't, I don't understand, and it's frustrating. But another biblical principle, if you back away, from the beginning to end of the Bible, and I think you see this in Scripture, I think you see it in history, I think you see it in the human condition, I think you see it experientially in our own lives, and our own emotions, and our own stuff. When Scripture illustrates the worst possible iniquity, iniquity being the ripples that happen from sin, the stuff that you can't, you can't get back, the worst possible iniquity, result of sin that's illustrated with Scripture, and, and maybe we just need to look at it figuratively because it's easier that way, but it, the, the iniquity, when it is illustrated in Scripture, usually connected to the loss of an innocent child. Because that's devastating to us. Always has been. I mean, you think about it. If somebody murders somebody, say somebody murdered Charles Manson or some other, you know, axe murderer or killer or something, we would say that's a bad sin. You really ought not do that. But we're, it's not that bad. They were a bad person. But somebody does something to an innocent child, and it's devastating to us. Or something happened to an innocent child in your own family. It devastates a family. It brings brokenness. It gives us questions. It makes us frustrated. It makes us angry. It makes us seek God and cry out and wonder why and get passionately upset. Because there's not good answers. And I think you see that in this text, and you see it in Scripture. In, in Adam and Eve's story, God says if you eat the fruit and do the wrong thing and, and sin, you're going to die. And they don't immediately die. They eventually do die. But who's the first person to actually die because of sin? Well, it happens to be Abel. It's the first person in Scripture. Their innocent, faithful, good, obedient son who dies at the hand of his coveting, jealous, angry brother, Cain. 
It's worse than death for a, for a parent. You see it in, in Genesis as well later with Abraham. You know, Abraham, for 25 years, God tries to teach him, I promise I'm faithful. I promise I have your best in mind. I promise I want you to be a blessing and leave everything up to me. And that's the story of, of Abraham. And he keeps messing it up because he doesn't trust God until finally he learns along the journey. And then the final, in Genesis 22, the final act of, have you, have you understood fully, Abraham, how I want you to trust me? He says, I want you to sacrifice Isaac, your son. Your, your one and only son on the altar. It's a creepy, terrible story. But as Isaac, I mean, as, as Abraham goes to do it, God stops him and says, I would never ask you to do that. I don't want you to do that. But that's the worst possible thing that you would ever have to do. That, that, is, that is beyond our comprehension for the innocent to die. We hate it. But that's how much you trust me. And he stops him and he provides another sacrifice and the story goes on. Or even in, in the ancient world, there were groups of people that sacrificed their children to, to other gods. And God says, that's atrocious, that's horrible. But when Scripture illustrates the ripples of our sin, they can't be put back in the box, that you can't get back the worst. Those are, those are iniquity. The worst iniquity that is always illustrated is the loss of an innocent child. And here in the text, when, when David's confronted with his own sin, he, he basically says, I've sinned against the Lord, and he's forgiven. That's his response. But if you keep reading, when that little boy gets sick, David spends weeks mourning and he cries out to God and he fasts and he prays and he seeks God because that's atrocious. So many times when David is confronted with his sin and it costs and the consequence is someone innocent struggling. There's other places that happens. It is David usually says, just kill me, God. Take me. It's part of, of, of David's mourning in this story and in this text. He won't eat, begging God. It doesn't fully alleviate our tension, but it reveals a truth of sin and a truth about who we are. Sin always affects the innocent. We sin today in ways that affect the innocent of the next generation. And there is iniquity, a ripple effect that we hate and that you can't undo. And the worst possible, the one that brings us tears and pains and will grieve families and will make us frustrated and make us want to close the Bible and never read it again or rip passages out is the thought of an innocent child suffering at the cost of sin because we hate to even see that. And ultimately, all brokenness in the world is because it's a broken world and we're all guilty. But again, if you step away and you, and you look, at, look at the biblical text, all of that is to point us to the New Testament. To point us to the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Where real repentance can 
be met with God and forgiveness can be offered and grace is experienced at a whole nother level. It is at the cross of Christ. Because you see, it's at the cross of Christ. It is what's different than, than other religions, than anything else. And the truth is our sin just devastates us. The struggle of the innocent, an innocent struggling in a world that we create, it devastates us. And the worst possible imaginable thing is the loss of an innocent child. And it's at the cross of Christ that you get God incarnate. The incarnation, you get God who is the innocent child, the illegitimate son of Joseph and Mary, not by his own choice, who's done nothing wrong, who's the only one that has ever been righteous. And you get him hanging from a cross and to the point that he cries out what we always cry out when we're face to face with the iniquity that we can't get back. We cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You get God as the innocent son. And in the same event, you get God as the loving father broken-hearted and devastated and I believe so broken-hearted that you read in the scripture that the, the sky is darkened and, and you see the veil of the temple ripped open uh, maybe that's the image of, of connecting and being open to God and that's how we can repent and join God but I believe there's also the image there of God himself ripping his garments in grief and loss which is a biblical image over the innocent son thing that devastates us. The iniquity that we can't put back in the box that haunts us. Guess what? Scripture's true. Jesus really bore our iniquity and our pain and our disease and our sin on the cross. He's the righteous one who can really forgive it and transform it. even so much than in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy chapter 5 where it says the, the iniquity of the fathers will be carried on to the third and fourth generation if you keep reading that verse it then says that God will pour out blessing on a thousand generations for the one who loves him and keeps his commandments and the truth is, we're all guilty. There's moments that we haven't loved him. There's moments that we were his enemy. And there's times that we don't keep his commandments. To where the one righteous one is Jesus. And we are the thousand generations that get adopted in as his siblings and into his family get the blessing of the one who was righteous. It still leaves us with brokenness and difficulty. But the biblical truth 
the image and the truth of Scripture is the only place we can find hope and healing, connection and struggle and grace and love to make it through is when we together come to the feet of Jesus, the one who really bore our iniquity, our pain, our questions, our suffering, our loss. And gave it all for us. Let us pray. Dear Lord, it is, as I said, a difficult passage this morning. But help us to be aware that in it it speaks truth about our sin, its progressive nature, the consequences among the innocent and what is the most devastating idea of iniquity and ripples that we cannot get back is innocent child and that is meant to bring us confusion and grief that is what you did not ever want us to have to experience but because of our sin it's out there in the world but through the cross of Christ brokenness of that is broken and can be forgiven and transformed and our grief and loss and pain and crying out it says here in this text that once it's all over David goes back to Jerusalem and to the temple the only place that we can find your peace and your forgiveness and answers or even your love and your, your comfort in the midst continual questions is at the foot of the cross and the grace of Jesus Christ may we embrace it may we live into it in Jesus name we pray